Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we conclude our series today, John 3.16, with a message titled, Should Not Perish, But Have Everlasting Life. So let's turn in our Bibles to John 3.16 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Death is a constant. Every year, every day, every minute, indeed every second, people are dying. You know, every year the approximate equivalent of the UK dies. So imagine that, over 60 million people die every year. If this is the year of your death, even though what you experience is dramatic and personal, it's certainly not unique. A great population of Earth is simply wiped away every year. And when Moses discussed that matter in Psalm 90, he said, You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. So when we're young, time seems to move very slowly, and the people around us, they seem to be so permanent. Mom and dad, brother and sister, although we know they'll one day die, yet that day seems to stretch into an endless horizon. But when we're old, we understand what Job said in Job 7, verse 6. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. Now, that image might not mean much to those who've never seen a weaver. But the shuttle that a weaver holds in her hand is thrown constantly back and forth between the threads. And a skilled weaver throws that shuttle back and forth with increasing speed. That, says Job, is what my days are doing. One after another, they fly by, and as the pace seems to increase, so also my life is quickly departing. And one day I'll be among the company of the over 60 million that simply disappear. John 3.16, that famous verse that we've been examining for this week, ends by promising that whoever believes in him, that is, in the Son of God, should not perish. But if that's all that John 3.16 had in mind, that we would not physically die, then we can demonstrably point out that the promise is simply untrue. I mean, years ago, musician Van Morrison wrote, Precious time is slipping away. You're only king or queen for a day. Doesn't matter to which God you pray, precious time is slipping away. Now, I respond that it does very much matter to which God you pray, but I would also agree that regardless of to which God you pray, death is awaiting you. I mean, you might believe in Jesus, but you're still going to die. And so if all John 3.16 meant by perishing is physically dying, well, the verse would be demonstrably untrue. But John wrote the words of John 3.16 somewhere in the A.D. 90s, and by that time, a great many of the followers of Jesus had died. Indeed, all of the original apostles of Jesus have died, only John is left. The rest have perished. John knows that, and his readers know that as well. And so we have to assume that John meant something quite different than that anyone who believes in Jesus will not physically die. And of course, by the time John writes John 3.16, he himself is an old man and he knows his death is not far away. And since that's so, we have to go back and examine the promise. When John 3.16 promised us that whoever believes in Jesus would not perish but have everlasting or eternal life, what does it mean? Well, the best place to look as to what John means, is to examine the book of John itself. And two passages come to mind. The first is found in John chapter 5, and the second is found in John chapter 11. Now, we'll get to John chapter 11 in due time, but for now, let's concentrate on John 5, verse 24. John is recording Jesus speaking. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Now, to be clear, I know some Bibles say everlasting life. Others say eternal life. It's the same thing. Now, having cleared that up, let's get back to John 5, 24. There, Jesus promises that the one who believes already possesses eternal life. That is, the moment they believe, they possess eternal life. So, what can that mean? Well, there are some who think it means that instead of dying and ceasing to exist, we just simply go on existing. But it does no good to put our words into Jesus' mouth. Let's do him the respect of letting him speak for himself. And Jesus is clear here as John accurately quotes him. By eternal life, Jesus means, and he says it, that the one who possesses this does not come into judgment, or to put it in another way, is not condemned in the judgment to come. That is, to come into judgment is to be found guilty when you stand before the judge. So stop here and let's orient ourselves. We've just read John 5, 24, but let's keep on reading. Verses 25 to 27. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear it will live. I mean, one way I suppose we can understand those words is to say, everyone dies and at the end of their natural lives, they simply don't exist anymore. Then Jesus calls and brings some back to life. But again, we've got to be careful not to put our words into Jesus' mouth. Notice verse 27. There we see that the Father has given authority to the Son to execute judgment. Well, now, whom is the Son judging? Is it only those who are dead, unconscious, no longer existing, that he calls back, and so they live? Well, no, that can't be the case, because Jesus has already said that those who have eternal life don't come into judgment. I hope you see. Those who come into judgment are those who die and who have not received eternal life. They stand before the judge. They are found guilty. See, on the other hand, those who believe in here... They hear the voice of Jesus and they live, meaning they've received eternal life. And so we have two tasks before us. The first is to describe the judgment, and the second is to describe eternal life. Let's start with judgment. What else does Jesus teach about that theme? Let's see what he actually said. Matthew 18, verse 8. But if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. Now, please notice here that Jesus says that the fire that awaits is an eternal fire. We've got to confront the word eternal. If that word doesn't mean an unlimited duration, then we can't read the words eternal life and mean unlimited duration there either. This becomes all the more clear as we examine further the teachings of Jesus on this matter. Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Then several verses later, in verse 46, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So it's very clear, Jesus taught eternal punishment versus eternal life. 
Again, it simply won't do to say that the punishment can't be unending. I mean, to argue that, in order to be consistent, you'd also have to then argue that the life is not unending. But of course, eternal means exactly what it appears to mean. It means eternal. It means without end. You see, many in our day, because of the spirit of the age in which we live, they want to argue that eternal life must mean never-ending, but eternal punishment can't mean never-ending. But to argue that simply won't do. Yeah, I'm convinced that many do believe that eternal punishment is not unending, but that's demonstrably untrue. Jesus didn't believe that. There's more. Let's stay with Matthew 25. We've seen that Jesus talked about eternal punishment versus eternal life, and that these are the only two destinies. Now, let's get the context of that passage. And here I'm reading Matthew 25, 31 to 32. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, we can see then that not only is Jesus saying that there lies before the human race the reality of eternal life or eternal punishment, and not only is he warning that coming under judgment is to come under the condemnation of eternal punishment, but now, well, to fill in the picture, Jesus says that he's the judge. Look, he's the one that separates the entire human race as a shepherd would separate sheep from goats. He puts them into two camps. Those human beings who are destined to perish, that is, they're destined to be found guilty before the bar of his judgment. And on the other side, he puts those who are about to be rewarded with eternal life into another camp. So here we have the promise that's made. If you believe in Jesus, you'll not perish, but have eternal life. And as we've seen, when it comes to believing, it does involve a number of components. But to simplify our discussion on this matter, it does mean that we repent of our sins, we turn from them, and we surrender ourselves wholly to Jesus, and that we put our confidence in him and his promise. We believe that when he says that he has died for our sins, that our sins have been dealt with, and we are now owned by Jesus. Anyone who does that, says Jesus, will not perish, that is, will not be eternally punished, but will enter into eternal life. So much more to discuss. Good news is meant to travel. Jesus commanded us to take the gospel to every generation on a global scale. When we partner in the Great Commission, we magnify the numbers of hearts receiving God's saving truth. We all need these truths. This is why Back to the Bible Canada is thrilled to share our latest resource, free for the month of February, called Companions for the Gospel. This full-color laminated reference guide traces Paul's missionary journey in Acts and highlights those who partnered with him along the way in spreading the good news of our Savior. Not only is this a great teaching tool, but it's also an invitation to participate as companions for the gospel in our own time and place. To request your free copy today or, or to give a fiscal gift to support Back to the Bible Canada nationally or globally, Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Up till now, we simply sought to understand the basic parameters of what's being said. We now understand that to perish is to come under judgment 
and be eternally punished. And by the way, that teaching is not unique to Jesus. It's also found in the First Testament. Here are the two clearest texts. The first is Isaiah 66, verse 24. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. That is, they shall continue to live, although it will be a horrible thing. The second text is Daniel 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. See, I don't know what could be more clear than those words. And yes, they do say exactly what they appear to say. Again, I'm sure that words such as these are not popular, but unpopularity is no indicator of truth. And furthermore, the horror of perishing should so impress us that therefore the salvation of Jesus should be all the more attractive. And so we can see that John 3.16 is simply in keeping with the entirety of the biblical witness. John 3.16 warns us about judgment. Now, I've already made the case that the one who will judge is none other than Jesus himself. There are a number of Bible texts that affirm that. 2 Timothy 4 verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Or listen to Peter's sermon to the Gentiles, Acts 10:42, And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he, that is Jesus, is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Oh, very well. Jesus is the judge. Should that alarm us? Well, let's remember that it was none other than Jesus himself who told us what he will say in the final judgment. Remember, he said, to those who perish, depart from me, you curse it. I'm sending you into eternal fire. It must at this point be honestly admitted that there are those who have never conceived of Jesus in that fashion. I mean, for them, the only vision they've ever had of Jesus is a tolerant, laissez-faire Jesus. But the Jesus, the one to be feared, the, the judge of the human race, that seems inconceivable to them. But again, that's only because our preferred image of Jesus is at variance with a real Jesus of history. So let's listen to the biblical description of the judgment. Revelation 20, 11 to 13. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Now that last phrase, each one of them, that's the key phrase. That is, the judgment is not societal or national. It is individual. And furthermore, there's a copy. There's a record of the deeds of every single one of us. Things that have long been forgotten are not forgotten at all. We hope that there might be a record of the excellent things we've done, and surely there is. But there's also a record of the things that we would certainly love to forget. Indeed, the things we've misremembered and the things we've had so long retold to make us the heroes of our own stories will now be replayed objectively. But still there is in the mind of most the idea that when their deeds are replayed, they're going to be just fine. So you want to consider Romans 2, 15 and 16. 
They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But of course, conscience can be trained and twisted, and the power to self-justify, that's enormous. But we will not be asked how we feel about our lives. We're rather going to be judged by the things we've done, even the secret things. Romans chapter 3 is an interesting chapter regarding the judgment that is going to come. Verse 10 makes an overarching statement. None is righteous, no, not one. What I do find fascinating about that is how very easily people simply disagree. I'm basically a good person. I mean, that's the common testimony of all. Indeed, even murderers testify, look, it's not who I am. I slipped up. I'm basically a good person. Now, if we judge ourselves by our standards, by our commonly agreed standards, it must be so. But then it's not we, it's not our culture that's on the throne of judgment. Jesus is there. Let's get back to Paul's statement that none is righteous, no, not one. He then goes on to say, no one seeks God. That is, We have not sought to understand God's judgment on our lives, nor have we sought to come to terms with our infinite debt of gratitude before God. Indeed, in the passage where Paul begins by saying that none is righteous, he ends that passage by saying, there's no fear of God before our eyes. And then if that were not enough, Paul has one more thing to say. By the works of the law, no human will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes a knowledge of sin. That is to say, if we look at God's laws, that is, his standard as to what righteousness actually looks like, if we understand what God has said, the upshot will be, we'll become aware of our sin. So here's the truth. The further a person is from God, the more convinced they are, they're fine. And if there's a judgment they believe, I'll be just fine. But the closer we draw to God, We begin to find out who he is, what he demands, the more we become aware of our sin. Be far from God, you think you're fine. Be close to God, you think you're a sinner. Now let's get back to the judgment seat of Romans 20. There we saw that books were open, keeping record of every deed of every human being. But then we also saw that there was another book. It's called the book of life. The books of deeds and then the book of life. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So it's amazing to think that a different book, other than the book of deeds, can even exist. For so many, their only hope in the judgment is the record of their deeds. Be a better person. Be a better version of you, they say. I mean, the bookshelves are filled with self-help books. So is electronic media. They say, just keep improving. You're going to be fine. But what if all the self-improvement doesn't earn us the righteousness of God? Then our only hope would be that there might be another book other than the book of deeds. And indeed there is. Now when we began to discuss this matter of eternal life, I said there were two passages in the Gospel of John that I thought were especially relevant. The first I said was found in John 5. The second is in John 11. In John 11 is the story about the death of a man named Lazarus. The chapter begins by telling us that a certain man was ill. He is Lazarus of the village of Bethany, and he is the brother of Mary and her sister Martha, women who are known to have been supporters and followers of Jesus. And John adds for us that all three of these Jesus loved. 
And when Jesus heard that Lazarus was very ill, he didn't hurry. He stayed where he was, lingering for another two days. By the time Jesus arrives in Bethany, Lazarus has already died. Jesus arrives on the outside of the village, and Martha goes out to meet him. And her first words are, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She, she's confident that Jesus could have healed him. And then she adds something that demonstrates the extent of her faith. She adds, but I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And she leaves that sentence hanging there. She doesn't say what she means by it. And then Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And she says, yes, I know that's true. He will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. But it's here at this moment that Jesus confronts her with a glorious truth. While it is good that Martha knew with certainty that there is a general resurrection on the last day, Martha was still not fully comprehending the identity of Jesus. So Jesus tells her, he tells her that he's the resurrection. He is the life. That is, he is eternal life. He's the doorway to all of that. And then he adds, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. He means eternal life. And as we've seen, eternal life is the life of God. And then in order to demonstrate that, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And then in order to demonstrate ultimately that he has authority to say all these things, Jesus himself rises from his own death. He demonstrates that the only hope that anyone has for eternal life is bound wholly in him. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. What a promise. My call to you, my dear listener, believe in Jesus. Believe in him, for he is your only hope. Believe in him, for he is the door to eternal life. John, thanks for an incredible series. Let me ask you a general question, though. Why is John 3.16 so critically important to the believer? Yeah, I mean, John 3.16, I mean, if there ever is the gospel in a nutshell, the gospel in one single sentence, um, that's it. Ben, years ago, I, there was a, a group of people that came to visit me, and, and uh, they didn't know anything about the Bible. They were from a different country, had a different religion. And uh, they said, we heard the Christian God was raised from the dead, and I told them that story. And then they said, what does it mean? And as I thought about, how can I explain this? I simply repeated John 3.16. And they looked at me and they said, oh, that would be such good news. Yeah, John 3.16 in one sentence tells us the good news of the whole gospel. Thanks again, John. And remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. February is Back to the Bible Canada's International Focus Month. Over the last number of years, God has graciously presented opportunities for this ministry to network with global partners that share our values and intent. Currently, our partnerships extend to the United Kingdom, Asia, Africa, and the Caribbean. New Bible teaching tools, devotionals, and booklets are being translated now into 14 languages and growing and we continue to work with international partners to train pastoral leaders to effectively teach the Bible. We're so grateful and privileged God has opened doors for international ministry partnerships. Your financial support makes it all possible. To find out how you can send pastors to the Bible teaching conferences, 
or support our international partnerships, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.